Funding for the Hinckley Report is made possible in part by the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation and the Cleone Peterson Eccles Endowment Fund. Thank you for listening to the Hinckley Report as a podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe at your go-to podcast platform. Promotional support for this episode of the Hinckley Report podcast is provided by Trib Talk, an award-winning news podcast from the Salt Lake Tribune. Join host Benjamin Wood, Tribune reporters, and community guests as they dive into the latest topics affecting Utahns. Find Trib Talk at sltrib.com or by searching for Trib Talk on most major podcast platforms. Tonight on the Hinkley Report. Leaders prepare for a special session to tackle several controversial issues, including medical marijuana and the big settlement payout for a former elected official. Upcoming elections continue to take shape as Utahns invest big money in candidates and causes. And as legislators start opening bill files, a new poll shows how citizens feel about important matters facing the state. Good evening and welcome to The Hinckley Report. I'm Jason Perry, director of the Hinckley Institute of Politics. Covering the week, we have Lisa Riley Roche, reporter for the Deseret News, Lindsay Whitehurst, reporter for the Associated Press, and Glenn Mills, anchor and reporter for ABC4 Utah. Thank you so much for being with us today. A lot happening in the political world. Uh, Glenn, we're gonna start with you though, on, on an issue that is, is being taken up nationally, but also on a very local level, the issue of vaping. It's a, it's, a, it's a health issue that has a lot of political connections. Why don't you talk about that for just a minute, the problem in the state and why it is being viewed through a political lens. Yeah, boy, how things have changed since the last time we talked, right, uh, with this. All of a sudden, we're starting to see these severe cases of lung disease pop up with the health department. Our health department currently looking at 35. We've seen six deaths across the country. Now, this is something we have seen the state legislature take up year after year. Representative Paul Ray has been trying to go after the vaping industry with regulations, uh, increasing taxes on products. But we've always seen it build or heard it build as this safer alternative to smoking. Now we're starting to question that as we see this connection between these uh, severe lung disease cases and vaping. Senator Romney has been taking this up. I did a story with him a couple weeks, uh, a couple months ago, on the uh, Tobacco-Free Schools Act. He's trying to add vaping into that. I went and talked with a local school district, and it is they are very concerned about how prevalent it is, how many students are using this. It's by no means a laughing matter, but one of the long-standing jokes is, you know, kids are going into the restroom and saying, "Why is there a urinal in this vaping room?" Mm. So that's kind of the mentality we're seeing in our schools. Senator Romney, others are very concerned about particularly youth and people have been sounding the alarm for a long time about specifically flavored juices that they say are specifically targeting kids. And so we're starting to see the president come out on that, Senator Romney, local lawmakers and saying, we have to do something about this now. Hey, Lindsay, let's cap capture a couple points here from what Glenn just said. And first, by, by a quote from Mitt Romney himself just this week on this issue about what kids do and do not know about this issue, uh, Senator Romney said, we talked to a number of young people who didn't even know it was not good for them. 
They thought it was just breathing steam with a little flavor, but they don't recognize they're getting hooked on nicotine. Right, I think that's one difference between vaping and, and traditional cigarette smoking, right? Is you have you have those flavors and you don't have some of the the, the smells and, and the, the flavors that, that we've come to associate with smoke. I mean, for, for decades now, there's been a real pushback against traditional smoking, lots of smoke-free areas. And so so with vaping, it's it's a different paradigm. And you don't have a lot of those typical things. And, and these new cases we're seeing in connection with vaping, they seem to come on a lot more suddenly than, than the traditional lung disease we, we see in, in, in conjunction with cigarette smoking that was prevalent in this country for years, years and years ago. So, so yeah, there's really, really some different kinds of issues to, to tackle here, and, and it's really starting to come to the fore and become really urgent. Mm -hmm. Certainly, there's a lot of momentum right now to get something done with this. Uh, tobacco traditionally has been kind of a tough thing to legislate because of the, the powerful lobbyists that the tobacco industry, and including the vaping industry, has hired in the past. So right now, with, uh, with uh, Senator Romney coming out and asking for that recall in the wake of these deaths and, and illnesses around the country, including illnesses in Utah, uh, prompting the president to, to step up and have his administration call for something similar. You know, we'll, we'll see if something actually happens at this point or if it's a lot of attention until we move on to the next thing without any real action. So a couple of other points I'll make real fast. Uh, I had a district agent in charge, Brian Besser, on the show this week, and he's very concerned about another alarming trend he's seeing within that, and that's illicit drugs being liquidized, uh, being liquefied and used as vaping as well. He says they're going under the radar, they're going disguised, you can't you, you know, you can't smell, you can't see, but he says teenagers are also uh, getting involved in these these cartridges with illicit drugs inside of them and using them for vaping as well. And, and one other thing I'll mention on the flip side of this is a lot of people are saying, look, at this point we do not have concrete answers as to exactly what the problem is here, so maybe we shouldn't be having such a knee-jerk reaction. And that's kind of what's playing out between, you know, some on one side versus those on the other who say, we have to act right now. Well, but I mean, you have a health crisis, right? You have people literally dying. And, and no one being quite sure why all of a sudden vaping has turned deadly. So why isn't a knee-jerk reaction called for in, in this case? It seems like the only reason there wouldn't be sort of an immediate let's, let's stop allowing these products to be used until we figure out what's going on would be the power of, of lobbyists. So, so, Lisa, you mentioned that uh, President Trump has made a statement that he will have some, some serious uh, recommendations coming forward in the near future. But also we have a state legislator uh, here, uh, Representative Paul Ray, who has said he's going to open a bill file. Maybe talk about that, see if this is the knee-jerk reaction, reaction you're talking about, or maybe why we haven't got to this point before now. Well, we'll see with, with, uh, with uh, Paul Ray's legislation, as, as Glenn was describing, whether or not uh, that can uh, uh, carry the momentum through to the regular session of the legislature. We have a special session coming up on Monday, but of course this is not on the agenda. So we're talking about getting to this issue in, in late January. By then, where will we be as a country? Will there be already have been national action that, that deals with this in a way that Utah won't need to step in? Or will we have a situation where, again, we've moved on to the next crisis, uh, that particular issue has, has gotten off the front page, off everyone's uh, radar, and uh, we're not as interested in resolving it. 
Very interesting. We'll watch this one very closely. Uh, let's turn to some polling on some issues that, are, that Utahns are talking about right now in Washington, D.C., uh, for sure, but also here in the state. So, Lindsay, uh, the recent poll, this Utah policy poll, asked the question, who do you trust more to handle gun policy? Just trying to get to who should make these decisions, who's, who they trust to make these decisions. And it's interesting for a, a fairly red state, which Utah is, 42% uh, only of Republicans said they trust Congress. Uh, Republicans in Congress and voters said 36% of them trusted Democrats to make those policy decisions. Are you surprised about that number? So Utahns, 42% say Republicans, 38% say Democrats. Yeah, that is an interesting number for Utah, right? Because we're, of course, a conservative state and one where a lot of folks feel strongly about their Second Amendment rights. So so I think that it also reflects how Democrats have kind of, you know, been pushing this issue and made it sort of their issue, you know, and how Republicans uh, perhaps haven't haven't had quite as much movement there. You know, there's certainly always talk about it and debate about it, but but the Democrats have have really worked to capture that issue and make it theirs. You know, you see presidential candidates like Beto O'Rourke really talking a lot about it and and trying to to make that an issue that that they both feel kind of emotionally connected to and that they can maybe stand out from the pack a little bit. Well, the trouble Republicans have with this issue, uh, we have people like Senator Romney saying, yes, let's look at background checks. They have to deal with uh, the Republican-controlled uh, Senate. And uh, Mitch McConnell has made it very clear that nothing's going to advance unless there's our assurances that President Trump will, will support it. And President Trump's been kind of all over the map on uh, on issues related to gun control, even issues like background checks, which are wildly popular among, you know, in background checks in terms of enhancing background checks to include private sales, such as those at, at gun shows that kind, kind of uh, skirt current law. They're wildly popular, even in Utah. And so when, uh, people tell pollsters that they trust Democrats uh, almost as much as they trust Republicans. That's, I think that's a very big part of that equation is Republicans are seen as beholden to a president that has not been clear on, on this issue. I think we are seeing a shift even in Republicans though that they're saying, yeah, now is time to be doing something. We have even Republican Representative Chris Stewart saying, you know, maybe we need to start taking a look at red flag laws. Uh, we have Republicans saying, uh, that have supported a bill in, in Congress right now for increasing background checks. So I think we're seeing a shift even on the right saying, you know what, it probably is time to do something about this. But even I mean, though we see the president kind of go back and forth, we've heard legislators say Republican legislators, even Mitch McConnell has said, you know, when they came back, we need to start taking some of this stuff up. But on the state level, we've, you know, there's been efforts to pass a red flag law at least twice that have, have mm -hmm. failed. So I don't know if there's even, if there's a, a real chance for that kind Not of thing. Not only have they failed, but it didn't even get a hearing right. last well, and year. And the red yeah. flag law was sponsored by a Republican right. in Utah, Steve Handy, who I talked to when the president first raised the possibility of backing a red flag law at the national level. And uh, Representative Handy told me, even with the president's words, 
on that topic that might not be enough to get it through the Utah legislature. Well, let's pick up that thread, Lindsay, for a moment, because we talked about maybe that first step being those enhanced background checks. Of course, you know, when you're buying from a gun store, largely at the shows, but it's the private sales and those individuals. So, Lindsay, in this same poll we were referencing, 88%, that's the number, 88% of Utahns support complete expanded uh, background checks. Is that even enough? So, maybe the president's words aren't enough. That kind of statement, is that enough to finally get this? That is a very good question, and, and we'll see. I think it's uh, to, to Lisa's point about vaping. Uh, we're we're concerned about it now. How does that translate into several months from now? Right. Every time there's one of these horrific mass shootings, there's of course a lot of people feeling really strongly about there's something we've got to do as a country about it, and then it maybe fades a little bit. And so, so yeah, that that will be interesting to find out. You know, and 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 of course, then there's the logistics of what does background check mean? You know, if you're selling selling a weapon on online or, or between friends, how do you enforce that? You know, it's it's not, I can see how once you get into the weeds of it, it does become a challenging thing that it, I mean, it's it's common sense, right? Why, why wouldn't you do a background check? But I could imagine how it might become a little more complicated as you get into the actual policy making end of things. The gun lobby is very powerful and I think we're at a defining moment where we're going to see once the legislative session comes up, we have Republicans saying, the American people is not going are not going to accept nothing, but will they really follow through with that in the session, both on the state level and nationally? Maybe uh, Congress can set an example for the Utah mm -hmm. legislature by taking some action on these things. But remember, this is also a big part of the presidential race. And as we saw in the recent Democratic debate, there's a, a division among Democrats on where to go with gun laws. There are some Democrats that say, look, we have a real opportunity right now, to, to Glenn's point, you know, that this is a real moment, can we take advantage of it and pass things that we can generally agree on, the background checks, the red flag laws, uh, maybe keeping guns out of the hands of domestic abusers, uh, or do we try to go further and start talking about an assault weapons ban and we talk about a ban. What do you do with the, the millions and millions of assault weapons already privately owned in this country? Well, you have Democratic candidates calling for those to, to basically be confiscated or bought back, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, how you describe that. And that has made this much more of a, a political issue, so the question is, do we try for getting some of the things that the public around the country, including Utah, say they want, or do we try for this larger uh, package of, of gun reform that's not going to yeah. be This is successful. really a new day, like, to add on to what you're talking yeah. about. For the longest time, Democrats' message was, we are not going to take your guns. Mm -hmm. Last night in the debate, no bones about it, some of them we're going to take assault weapons. That was the message that some of them were saying at the debate last yeah. night. That's a different day in this debate. That's right. for sure. Right. Uh, before we leave, at least I wanted to just uh, go to one of your articles this week that you wrote about on, on this poll itself uh, in terms of women's women in the state of Utah, how they approach this particular issue. Because 40% of the women in the state of Utah said they're looking for the Democrats to make these changes that we've just talked about. That, that was a, a, a very interesting uh, uh, point, uh, that women trust Democrats. The word trust was used in that mm -hmm. poll. Women trust Democrats to deal with gun policy more than they trust Republicans, Utah women, voters that were, were surveyed. 
part of that might be that uh, there are a lot of women speaking out on this issue. Uh, and so women feel more comfortable, a lot of Democratic women speaking out on this issue. So women feel more confidence in them getting something done. I, I've also heard that uh, women as mothers, as uh, um, uh, sisters, as, as uh, whatever, have much more emotional investment in the safety of children and feel that this lack of action is is jeopardizing the safety of their families, uh, sending their kids to school, going to a big event like like the Gilroy Carly Festival where we saw a mass shooting, um, just being at a mall where we saw mass shootings recently. I mean, it's really created this sense of, of the world not being safe, and that seems to affect women more than men, at least in this poll. Okay, we'll keep watching this issue. Uh, let's turn to the special session on Monday. Lindsay, I, I know we're all very excited about <laughs> the special session, but uh, I wanna go through a couple of the big issues that the governor's put on the call that we'll be going through. Uh, the first one we just really need to get to is medical marijuana. What are they looking at uh, in this special session, and what, the, what are they hoping to accomplish? The big thing is the the way it's going to be distributed in in the compromise that was reached um, ahead of the the prop 2 actually passing it called for a state-run dispensary system that was at least in part aimed at reaching those rural residents that might not be near a, a private dispensary it's kind of a combination of sort of public private thing that we're gonna have X number of private dispensaries and they're probably gonna be based in the cities and then we're gonna take the rest of it and distribute it through state health departments this was really unusual no other state had tried this, and um, and there's a there's a reason for that because ma marijuana remains illegal on the federal level, even though many many states, of course, have legalized it for medical and, and some for recreational purposes. So um, so as this sort of played out a little bit more, as some uh, county attorneys started to look at it, they said, I don't think it's a good idea for the state to be involved with this, for public employees to be involved with this. So they're going to go ahead and change that and increase the number of private dispensaries that will be allowed. Um, and so that that's kind of the the biggest thing that that they're going to take a look at in this this particular session. A couple of things I'm watching in this. Uh, so they're going to increase this bill, as written, is going to increase from seven to twelve privately owned dispensaries. However, I know that an amendment is going to be offered up on the House floor that will increase that to twenty. That was one of the big talking points and discussions at the uh, HHS interim committee on Monday. Is will 12 serve the state? Mm -hmm. A lot of people say no, it won't. So they're looking at upping that to 20 one thing, but another point I want to make, the compromise. Uh, Gail Rizika with Utah Eagle Forum got up and testified to the committee, hey, we made this agreement and the central fill was part of this agreement. We dropped our advertising, we dropped our opposition to Proposition 2 because we were promised this central fill uh, portion and she says that was crucial to the compromise. So you have these two sides playing out. By all means, it's looking like uh, this is going to go through and they're going to eliminate that because it's just not going to work for the, the uh, reasons you brought up. Uh, so there's that, that fight going on with that element as well. And one other point, this is a I told you so moment for Democrats <laughs> and for advocates of, right. of Proposition 2. And we told voters. you, yeah, right. we told you it wasn't going to work. Uh, you tried to put it into motion. It's not going to work. And now we're starting to step back closer to Proposition 2, although not all the way there just yet. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? We, we saw Medicaid expansion. Uh, uh, 
passed by voters, full Medicaid expansion as offered through the federal government's Affordable Care Act, passed by voters, and the legislature stepped in and said, no, we can do this better. And the, the very first thing they needed for the, to implement their plan was denied by the federal government, a, a waiver that, that would have uh, allowed modifications to that program. And so now we're looking at medical marijuana where voters had, a, had an initiative um, that polls showed would pass, even though I know Gail Ruzica suggested had the advertising continued, they might have been able to defeat it uh, at the polls. Uh, the suggestion was it was going to pass as written, but the compromise was, was put in place. And that, that compromise now is running into trouble. So, you know, when the legislature says voters through the initiative process can't make good law, well, you know, we're seeing that legislators sometimes can't do it either, right? Well, and I kind of <laughs> wish they would have kept it. It would have been, it wouldn't have been fascinating to see how that played out in the courts. Here you've got a, a state that's actually handling and distributing medical marijuana and the feds, it's still illegal. I think it would have been a really interesting uh, court case, but I probably would have been the only one <laughs> who would have enjoyed that. Well, it's also just amazing to see how this bill is just a work in progress and how it continues to change. Sure. As they say, okay, this seems like a great idea, oh, wait a minute, maybe it's not going to work. And I think we're not done with the changes on this bill as well. Once this bill passes in the special session, we'll probably see more cleanup bills in the general yeah. session. Sure, we have sure. to see it actually implemented, right? right? Isn't that March 1st? Yeah, March. Yeah. And that's another point I'll make real fast is everyone seems to be very concentrated on making sure that implement, uh, implement, implementation date in March is reached. Uh, you're hearing the governor say that. We heard uh, Chairman Senator Christensen saying that during the interim committee. So they seem really dedicated to making sure that that is implemented on time. Another issue that's going to come forward is uh, money for a settlement. So $1.5 million we know of as part of this discussion in the special session, Lisa, to, I guess, end the lawsuit of former Attorney General John Swallow. I think you had a chance to talk with him about, about this. And here's what's interesting about that settlement. It's uh, on the agenda for Monday's special session. As of uh, Friday morning, that settlement deal has not been signed. Uh, when I spoke to the former Attorney General John Swallow uh, earlier in the week, uh, or actually last week, he told me that uh, he wasn't quite sure about releasing the state from the possibility of further legal action because the 1.5 million covers his legal fees in defending himself against the corruption charges. Which, of which he was acquitted. Exactly. And uh, he, as, as soon as he was acquitted, he went to court and, and tried to get those fees. So this settlement offer settles the legal fees, but it doesn't settle any kind of damages for uh, other uh, uh, issues related to uh, what he went through defending himself. Uh, if, if he does settle, would that kind of uh, preclude any further action against the state on his the, part? That's the issue with the, the settlement deal. The state, uh, uh, Attorney General Sean Reyes, has made it clear that he wants the settlement offer to end this case. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Swallow can't go on and sue for damages or something oh, like sue that. Sue for something else. Whereas Swallow wasn't 
sure when I talked to him whether he was willing to, to sign that. So both sides are still talking about this and we'll just have to see if it gets signed in time for the special session. Because if it doesn't, it's not going to happen. Well, I guess Glenn, that can still be, they can still put out an allocation, which they would have to do for a settlement of this size as they work through the negotiations, I suppose. Yeah, and I mean, we're going to have to wait and see what happens in between now and the special session. I think that will be the key to, to follow up on as that day approaches. All right. Uh we all had a chance to watch the Democrats debate, the presidential candidates on the Democratic side of the aisle. I know we are all watching and it was so interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of curious, a couple takeaways from sort of the, the, the list that has narrowed a bit uh, since we started. Uh, Lisa, what is your key takeaway? Uh, you you shouldn't make fun of someone's age. I think we I think we yes. saw that in the exchange between um, Julian Castro and uh, Secretary Castro and uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I think uh, Castro tried to attack the Democratic frontrunner uh, by suggesting that he had already forgotten a point he made earlier, but there were issues with uh, uh, how Castro recalled the point. And I, I just don't think that's what voters want to see. In the, in the earlier debates, we saw a lot of attacks on uh, former President Obama and his policies. And I think that made a lot of Democrats uncomfortable because the real target in, in a political race is your opponent. And the ultimate opponent for Democrats is going to be the sitting president, Donald Trump. So why attack yeah. previous, uh, a previous Democratic administration when you have a target right in front of you? What do you think, Glenn? I was really surprised that, so the audience made it very clear that they did not like what Castro was doing, but he kept on it. Even through the jeers and the boos from, from the audience, he kept on it. I think, you know, when you have 10 candidates on stage, you're really trying to make sure you have that one shining moment. I think that is probably what he thought this was for him. But if you look at the reaction, not only immediately, even after and this morning on Friday morning, it just ended up backfiring Maybe on him. Maybe trying to repeat Kamala yeah. Harris's success that she had the, mm -hmm. the last time. But yet Kamala Harris suffered in the polls right. after Afterwards, that. yeah. And, and maybe, maybe, maybe there's a hopeful note here that that, that that kind of got you moment that candidates try to use to differentiate themselves, to your point, Glenn. Maybe voters really don't want to see that. Maybe they did really want to hear a more substantial debate on the difference between Medicare care for all and mm -hmm. uh, a plan that allows people to keep the, the health care that they currently have, at least for now. Uh, may, maybe that's what voters really want is, is a more substantial debate. As, as Democrats, they can have differences, but we need to focus on what those differences are and how they can take on the, the current administration. Uh, I wonder if it also goes to Biden's lead has kind of endured, you know, and I mean, of course, we're still very early. Right. Mm -hmm. But but he's he's still the, the one to watch here, despite the energy on the on the left. Uh, he's he's still the one to watch. That's going to have to be. Okay. Gus, we're going to keep this one going. I'm sure. Thank you so much for the great insight today. From top to bottom. This is so interesting. Thank you for this. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode of The Hinkley Report. If you like listening to the experts talking about the issues, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app.